We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. In a recent episode, Jason quietly shared how he's acquired 12 brands over the last few years. So uh, in this episode, partly because I'm incredibly curious about this, we are going to dive into the topic of how and why to acquire e-commerce businesses. Jason, are you ready to share more on this fun topic, more specifically about your personal experiences? Yeah, I am. This is going to be a good one. I'm really excited to have a conversation, share more details and ideas about how not only, you know, I know, Michael, you're intrigued by this idea, but I hope all of our listeners are as well. There's something to learn here for everybody who's in the game. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the first questions is really, why should anyone be interested in this? I mean, let's let's put it broadly first. Okay. You've acquired businesses. We've got to ask you why you did that. But why is this mm-hmm. a topic that is something that should, people should be thinking about who are not yet thinking of acquiring? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it comes down to two simple questions that we can unpack and and dive deeper into. The first one is, does it add value to your current business? You know, does the thing you're acquiring add strategic value or some kind of value? And there's a lot of different types of value, which we can talk about. But that's the first question. The second question is, is it available to you at a reasonable price? And I think the, those are obviously like duh questions and, and and sound so simple, but there's a lot of nuance there and a lot of detail to unpack and think through. So I think that's sort of the first fundamental question. I, I'm not a fan of acquiring randomness just because it's out there. I'd rather, you know, have people acquire something that adds specific value to what they're currently doing. And I guess that's the, you know, kind of underscoring that first, you know, bullet point. That's the key thing, I think, to to sort out and think about. I think that's true. And I would say just to sort of keep the attention of pretty much everyone who's in the e-commerce game, I think even if you're not thinking of acquiring a business for a while, what I would say is very, very likely you're building towards the sale of a, a business. Oh, I know y- yeah, sure. 20 or 30 Amazon business owners or former owners who sold their businesses. It's a very, very real thing. It's not a theoretical possibility. It happens every mm-hmm. week at the moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is the flip side of buying a business. So if you learn to think like a business buyer, just as if you learn to think as a, a, like a, a buyer of real estate or properties of mm-hmm. houses, flats, whatever whatever condominiums, whatever you call them in America, then you're going to do a better job of selling your business because you're going to think like a buyer. So if nothing else, I would say to put that hat on thinking like a business buyer, even if for you that feels yeah. like something several years off is going to be valuable in that way. Really. It's it's a great point. And I'll just say, I guess, to you're the one zooming out 30,000 foot view on this idea. Just, so just that's briefly. <laughs> well, let me go there with you then. Yeah, I, just to add into the idea, I think the state of the union for e-commerce buying and selling is that it is just a hot, hot, hot market. There are so many people who can create, let's call it a a version one business and then want to sell it. And they don't have the interest in operating it forever. It's not their forever thing, but they've booted it up. And they've got it going and there's just so many people out there doing it. And so it's created this environment where people coming into it are saying to themselves, wow, why should I start from scratch? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to buy something from somebody who's got it up and running already. And that's the environment in which we're operating and it's just fun to, to behold. 
And so there's a huge amount of opportunity there. So I guess that's the 30,000 foot view of this, which is just to say, this is not a hard to do thing right now. This is everywhere. This is everybody. This is so yeah. like the thing. So I guess that's a important, you know, first bit of this. Yeah. So it is. Okay. So we looked at the, the why question and you said add value to your current business or does it add value and, and a reasonable price? Th- those sound, mm-hmm. you have the knack of making things very simple, but obviously there's got to be a little bit more nuance to that. Otherwise, I guess we'd all be doing it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Wh- where are the nuances in this adding value piece, first of all? How do you assess yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways in which something you could. Uh, acquire can add value. The first thing is, is it a, a brand that you would be adopting into what you would be going from? If you have one brand now, you'd be going into a portfolio, uh, a, a brand, uh, a house of brands. Some people refer to it as, you know, do you have one brand that that's called a branded house? Like that's the only brand you operate under. Or are you like a consumer packaged goods company uh, like General Mills or a lot of the food packaging companies? They have tons of brands, like tons and tons and tons of brands. And so they're a house of brands. And so that's sort of the first decision. You know, are you going to be acquiring an actual public facing brand? Now, that might not be true, but it's it's one way an acquisition can add value. It might be just simply that you're acquiring a product that will feed into your supply chain. So uh, just add value in terms of your sourcing strategies. That's awesome. You might be acquiring a team of interesting operators that you, you know, you, you know, they're doing a good job and you don't have a team. (laughs) You need, you need people to do a good job. And in that way you're acquiring to hire. That's a acquire hire as a phrase. And, and then I guess the most obvious one is it could provide steady cash flow of sales and, and profits to you which increases the overall value of your core business. So what is that four or five ways in which, you know, an acquisition opportunity could add value to your, to your existing business. And I'm sure there are many more, but it's just top of mind. Yeah. I really like that. I mean, what you've given is three ways that are broader than I was thinking more narrowly cash flow focused and, and profits focused. And I guess that's the mm-hmm. traditional sort of private equity type model. In essence, everything gets reduced to a series of spreadsheets and financial statements. And mm-hmm. you're looking at a much more blend of that plus the operational and branding mind that you bring. And in particular, that brand to portfolio is very interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. on the one hand, you have people like General Mills in the UK who have Unilever that actually own, you know, 20 different, like, I don't know, they own, I don't mm-hmm. know who owns Colgate toothpaste and, and mm-hmm. this and that, but, you know, and Oral-B um, toothbrushes, for example, in that vertical. Yeah. But actually a lot of things that we think of as consumers as being X company are actually owned by one big company. That's right. And um, the opposite, I guess, is true. Somebody like Google who acquired YouTube, they acquired AdSense, mm-hmm. they acquired, what was it? The, the Google keywords tool back in the day wasn't even mm-hmm. created by Google. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yet those are kind of feel like core parts of the operation now. So they've kind of subsumed them into the Google right. brand, the unified experience for advertisers like us or consumers who search. So I guess there were two ways to flip with that, right? What What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you laid it out correctly there with those ideas, right? Google could have gone with Google Video and just made all the YouTube stuff called Google Video. They had a thing called Google Video, but they didn't. It had a brand associated with YouTube. And when they acquired it for a billion dollars, I think the numbers are insane. I think uh, this is just, you know, from memory, but I think they acquired it for like a billion dollars. And then I saw this article that said, YouTube now makes a billion dollars like every three weeks or some crazy thing like that. And that might be incorrect, but you could Google around and find the real numbers, but it was insane. And, but yes, they kept it as a standalone brand because it had brand equity and value. And so, but you get these choices when you're going to acquire 
And so that is a fun part of the exercise. The question is, you know, is the, is, is there a brand there that has value? And, and that means not only just registered trademark and the intellectual property associated with it, but it also has uh, customer loyalty and traffic and energy and enthusiasm, all those things. Um, and they don't sit through and it's, uh, these are the choices you get to make. So. Yeah, another interesting one that springs to mind in the, in the sort of bigger company pictures, Innocent Smoothie, which was acquired infamously in some ways by Coca-Cola, because obviously the brand values of Coca-Cola and those of Innocent somewhat conflicted. So I suppose sometimes you can have a bit of a conflict between the sort of natural consumer base of one company uh, and, yeah. and the other, right? But mm-hmm. I guess that's something else you've got to think through when you're yeah. acquiring something. Yeah, sure. The other the other thing I like is the supply chain piece that you mentioned. I mean, I was speaking to somebody, who, Stephen Pope, who runs My Amazon Guy, so another Amazon agency, and he was saying he sells uh, products made of glass. He said, like, I'm, I'm into the vertical integration right now. My solution to the problems of importing is don't import. Own, not only own, you know, <laughs> buy in factory, in, buy from a factory in yeah. America, but preferably own the factory. And he said, basically, I want to own the sand that is then turned into glass in the mm-hmm. factory, and then I want to. He wants to own the kind of whole supply chain. So obviously, I know that you. And you and Cinnamon have done quite a lot of acquisitions along those lines. So tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that sort of reason for buying. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, an interesting play for for people who are building their their overall enterprise value. And and you know that's an interesting example you mentioned about the, the guy wanting to you know own the, the glass making process. If that if he's a front end seller, I think that's the you know the question is, um, are there are there resources available to you that would lower your overall future costs and or you know solidify your supply chain in such a way that it just makes your business stronger it's vertical integration is the phrase i guess but it, that sounds fancy but it's really not it, do, it doesn't have to be that fancy you can do this the kitchen table entrepreneur version of this stuff is is totally yeah. workable yeah. and so yeah we we have we continue to acquire brands and uh, they, they make sense for us to acquire we operate and i mean i'm happy to explain the the detail a little bit we operate a marketplace with you know over 100 and whatever 15 brands or whatever and something like that and we have our own house brand and the people we work with sometimes are wanting to exit they're done. They're retired. They're moving on. They've found other things. They just, they, you know, they don't have the energy for it or whatever, or they just want to, you know, make, make a, a profit from their work. And so we're buying those as they come up and that's a fun uh, opportunity for us. And then it just turns it in from a, in essence on in Amazon terms, it turns it in from being a third party seller on our, our marketplace to being a house brand. And that makes a ton of sense for us. And it it is a rewarding process and enjoyable. And we've had positive, really positive feedback from the people we've, we've done the deals with. So that, you know, that's a a way in which it's a a win-win for everybody involved. And, uh, you know, from the front, the customer facing point of view, it's a win as well. I mean, it's a a win, win, win all the way around. It's positive and it's an exciting little journey we've been on the last couple of years. Yeah. It does sound interesting, but what what is your reason for doing that? Can you just explain why you would do that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you think about math on long-term royalty payments, long-term royalty payment is I, as the publisher, agree to pay you a royalty on future sales forever. Now, that's a long-term commitment on my part to do monthly math and payments and, you know, but it's it's all a caretaker role in a way and sort of a marketer promoter role 
in a way, if you're, if you're the you know publisher and you know marketer of a of somebody's you know royalty based work, intellectual property work, then but then on their side of the deal, that means they'll get a residual payment for a long, long time. That's you know relatively small amount, or you know it's it's an amount, but if you know stacked up over ten years, the monthly payment looks like a small amount of it. So you know it's an opportunity on those those people's side to say, I would like all the future payments right now. You know, how how far in the future are you willing to pay me for these this uh, this future royalty stream? And can we make that deal? And and that's the the simplest. I mean, that's the basics of it. It's just we're solidifying um, our catalog and portfolio and our our brands, and they're getting a one time payment rather than small payments over a long 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 time. And so it's just a unique twist of our, because we're operating a marketplace, but the, you know, we've done other deals outside of that structure that we I'm happy to talk about as well, that are more straightforward acquisition of random outside, you know, kind of companies and brands. And so, but yeah, so, so it's a little deep. So the question is, does it add strategic value to us? And does it make a lot of sense for the seller? Yeah. Okay, so you've mentioned that how much are you willing to pay me question. So I guess that brings us to the price question, which was the other one of your two criteria. Does it add value to your brand or make uh-huh. sense? And, uh-huh. and you know, is the price reasonable? That's mm-hmm. a huge question. <laughs> how do you even begin to tackle the question of the right value? Yeah, so there's different ways to value a business. And then the, the question is, you know, can you come to consensus on value of the, of the business? And so the first question is, you know, does it generate earnings? Is a profit being made in the enterprise? And if there's profit being made in the enterprise, it makes it fairly straightforward. That's a very common scenario that many, many people have done. And so it's there's simple industry standards. And it's just a, you do a multiple of the annualized earnings. So you, you ask the person to do a prior 12-month profit and loss statement. How much money did they actually, you know, top line sales and then profit? And then you usually they have to say, well, this was profit, but, you know, I bought an... Uh, a new MacBook. And so it was, you know, it was a discretionary spending on the owner's side or whatever. So you come to some rational, you know, consensus on earnings, and then you do a multiple of that. And, And frequently that's anywhere between one times to, you know, it could be five times or seven times annualized earnings. The, the, Depends on the hotness of the property involved and, you know, the, the brand and you know, how many people are interested and how fast they're growing, a whole bunch of factors. But you make an offer based on a multiple of the, you know, prior 12 months earnings. And so that's, um, you know, some sellers will immediately warm up to that idea and some sellers will just not want to go there because they don't feel like there's, er, you know, earnings that are materialized in the way that they had hoped, dreamed, planned, or thought would occur. And so so that's one whole bracket of how to value. And then the second bracket is if it doesn't have any earnings, you know, there's still a lot of businesses that don't have any earnings being operated that still have a ton of uh, value in different ways. Maybe they have, you know, intellectual property, uh, like a patent or something, maybe they have amazing product and there's just not been margin there. Maybe they have a great team. Maybe they figured out something, you know, on the marketing side, social media side, that's really, really hopping, but it hasn't resulted in net profit. And then the question is, how do you value that? Those are harder, I think, to to put value on, but, but nonetheless, it can still happen. And then the question is what, you know, what's the basis for that valuation and how do you get to that conversation and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a fascinating question, isn't it? How to value things. And, you know, valuing things on the multiple of earnings is is very, very standard indeed. Mm -hmm. We talked about a heck of a lot in the FBA private label world, which doesn't mean that, by the way, this is why I think every single business owner should think in these terms that we're discussing today, even if they Mm -hmm. never actually 
you know, buy a business or sell one because the value of your business, folks, in general, if you're selling on Amazon, it's pretty simple. It's between two, 2.5 and maybe 3.5 yeah. if you're really lucky of your okay, you 12 month earnings. So if you have no earnings, you have no value to your business in essence, unless you can sell off the email list or something. Well, um, but I would just say, I mean, check. that is, that is, that is valuable. I mean, it, there are there are valuable assets in a business. It's not earning any profit, sure. and that's you know. And so if you if you've got a, a high revenue rate and uh, no profits, you don't have a zero value business. And I would just sure. caution people to not dump something that's you know misvaluation is the name of the game. Like that's how people win and lose in this scenario is misvaluing something. And so, you know, if you do have items in the business that clearly someone would have to pay to create, that's a way to look at it. If, if you would have to, it's like a replacement value idea. If you would have to pay to create a, a list of 10,000 email subscribers or pay to create, you know, a product and that's ha- being manufactured, manufactured in China, then they're, you know, that's, Somebody else might might pay you for that. So there you go. So anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. No, but that's fantastic. That brings me to the the a little thing that's happening in the mastermind at the moment. Obviously, can't share specifics, but I was approached by one of the mastermind members because they have a company that they've been talking to, which is in a related industry, some of the products what they have, mm-hmm. and they're basically selling up as a mom and pop business after like you know mm-hmm. forty years in business or something, and they couldn't get any responses. So the first thing I said is like, they say the fortunes in the follow up. Why don't you send them a registered post, you know, a actual physical letter? They're, they're the owners in America and, and the guys in the masterminds in the UK, and then phone them and, and email them. And lo and behold, they did get a response. These guys apparently have several mm-hmm. hundred thousand email addresses for a customer database but n- mm-hmm. not many of them are active and uh-huh. then you know this guy sort of said to me that i know you think about this sort of stuff a lot mike you know famous for obscure thinking obviously at this stage of the game and he said uh, how do we put a value on that so i gave him a few thoughts but uh, yeah. that's an interesting case right so they they have been trading but it's not a future trading company they're buying yeah. so much as a list of people interested in products in the category that they also sell. So that's mm-hmm. an intrigue. That's an, an example of what you've just been saying. The kind of replacement cost of finding those people might be actually quite a lot of Google mm-hmm. AdWords, uh, running a website, email campaign writing, and so forth. So how yeah. would you value a deal like that if you came across it? Well, I've done that before. And so I, I, have, a done, I have done a deal like that. Actually, I've done two deals like that, actually. And the first deal, the owner just asked me what I thought the business value was. And it was basically you know, losing, you know, money every month. So yeah, to buy that, you're buying a horse that eats. That's the phrase. Like, you know, you got to feed that horse. You, you know, you're buying something that you have to invest into the next month after you pay the original owner. And so I did, I've done two deals like that and happily, happy to do it. Now, in the first case, the the business owner had no, no idea. He 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 wasn't sure there was how to value it or if there was value. And I just made him an offer and I made him an offer that was so ridiculously good for me. I was going to be happy if he said yes. And if he said no, I would chalk it up to me being, you know, kind of let's call it frugal or conservative in my valuation because I knew that there was, you know, in the next 12 months, I knew how much I'd have to spend to keep this thing going. Well, that was a fantastic deal for me, and it was a pot, it w- went through, and um, happy as a clam, and he was happy too, and he got rewarded for his work. He didn't think there was value there, and there, and and he got a check that was a sizable check to him, mm-hmm. and and I got a, a brand that I'm happy with. In another scenario, we did a deal, and the owner had clearly had a value in mind, 
and the value in mind was, uh, you know, this the, the the valuation based on work and effort and not based on earnings, but based on the sunk costs, I guess you could say, you know, what, what, what had gone into making it. And in that scenario, we, we didn't really have an opportunity to budge much on the pricing, but here's the trick. This is like real estate in a lot of ways. If you're familiar with real estate, you know, deals and that kind of thing, we, we negotiated on the terms of the deal a lot. And actually, there was t- plenty of pliability and flexibility and, 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 you know, kind of, I guess you could say negotiableness, negotiability on the terms of the deal. And so then that just totally made it work. So we we're like, you'll get your price, but here's what we need to make that a reality. Done. And so that was that was how that worked out. And we're happy as clams. And it was a successful, you know, exit for that person as well. And, and, and that's just, it's turned out really, I, I call that the, our deal of the decade. <laughs> I like and, it. I, I mean, I think yeah. it, you make an extremely good point when you were warning not to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater in, in the phrase we use in the UK. I don't know if, if you use that uh-huh, in the US, sure, it sounds yeah. a bit alarming, but in other words, you've created an asset of value, even if it's actually losing money, as you said, the horse that buying a horse that eats, I like that phrase. Yeah. So that's actually, I think, increasingly valuable. There's a nice synergy there between somebody right. got something that nobody else could actually use. But if you happen to be in the same space or you want to enter the space, it's yeah. actually value to you as a very specific buyer, isn't it? Like these guys who wanted to buy an email list of several hundred thousand people yeah. in a very specific area. To me or to anyone else that I know, it would be completely and utterly valueless. But yeah. these particular people, it's actually a value. And then there's a, you know, yeah. it comes down to the, the match between the, the the gap that the buyer has, I guess, and what the seller has to offer, right? I guess that's yeah. what Totally. And, and you're right. It's, it's really, people would ask the question, well, why would you acquire something that's, that you know, you have to spend money on the next month in addition to what you paid for? Like there's no profit. Well, it's because there's strategic value and it's because it's bolting onto something that I already have going in a way that adds value to what I'm bolting on. And just think of it this way. If you've got an engine in your vehicle, that's generating profit, but you don't have a trunk or a bumper, or a hood, or a roof rack, then those things don't have to add va- a profit, but you still need them in your business. And so, you know, what you're doing at the at the owner level is you're saying to yourself, how can I make what I have more valuable? And, and you, a lot of times in our mind, we do that thinking when we say, I'll spend money on Facebook ads, I'll spend money on AMS ads, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll launch a new product. And all of those are good strategies. But Acquiring another company that would add something interesting to the party is also incredibly valuable. And you mentioned email lists. Of course, that's one of the things that's valuable. You know, you can have a really large email list and not be making any profit, but to to someone else who has the product suite that's of, of interest, that could be very valuable to, you know, to acquire. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, I think that's this is how to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the things that people often will, as marketers, forever and ever talk about being valuable assets in your business such as a list the money is mm-hmm. in the list is the famous phrase i believe mm-hmm. it to be true and yet people don't tend to be in the mood to actually pay money for the list they'll hire lists from list brokers they'll build their own list mm-hmm. very common activities mm-hmm. and yet there doesn't seem to be a thinking of as common as as it is like this this guy i'm talking yeah. to potentially is going to do it you've done it a couple of times so i think that actually to me that means there's probably better value to be had because if everybody's Mm -hmm. doing something that tends to push the price up so Mm -hmm. amazon ads google ads facebook ads getting incredibly expensive now as a customer Mm -hmm. acquisition strategy i'm not saying one shouldn't do it but 
I think fishing where the fewer people go is generally going to give better value, right? It certainly seems to be your your story. Yeah, totally agree. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about how you assess the return on investment or the upside. I mean, I suppose we ought to differentiate between things which have existing cash flow versus the the, the ones we've been talking about. But obviously, you've got a, a, an assessment to make before you get into how to do it. So how mm-hmm. do you even go about that? How do you assess the business? Yeah, how do you assess the upside potential or the return? So, for example, uh, if you're right. going to buy yeah. mm-hmm. something that the horse that eats, <laughs> mm-hmm. how do you assess that that's going to make you money in future? How did you mm-hmm. go about making that decision? Yeah, well, two two different scenarios. Again, it goes back to the does it have earnings or does it not have earnings? If it has earnings, then what you're saying to yourself is in the process, you're you're doing what they call diligence or due diligence. You due diligence. The, the question is, are those numbers phantom? you know, illusory numbers, are they, are they, you know, a mirage that someone's constructed so that you'll buy their business or are they legitimate, you know, numbers that you can say, okay, if, if this isn't a a scam and this is legit and I inherited this stream of sales and profit, how far into the future would I break even? And so, you know, just in round numbers, let's just say you, you buy something for uh, you buy something that's earning a thousand, let's just do this a simple small math. You buy something that's earning a thousand dollars a month and you buy it for $12,000, you know, in 12 months, you're going to be at, you know, made whole your essence in essence on the 13th month, you're going to have a uh, broken even, and you're going to have just uh, all that profit fall straight to the bottom line without the obligation of that uh, original purchase. And so, you know, how far into the future do you want to go? Is is that, you know, how far you'll you'll pay? Would you pay for 24 months into the future? Would you pay for 36 months into the future? How much are you willing to pay to acquire that future uh, break-even point? And, and that's just with the current asset as it currently exists. And then, of course, all of us as entrepreneurs say to ourselves, you know, can we add strategic value? You know, could I double the sales of this thing I'm, you know, acquiring? Or could I make it more profitable? And a lot of the ways that people do the making it more profitable is you have your existing assets in your business. Let's say you have bookkeeping services and a CPA and you've got a virtual assistants and you've got a social media team and you've got all of these things that you put together to run your current business and you to acquire something new, you could take out a lot of costs and taking out costs means that you would you'd be more profitable. So that's a very, very, very common, I mean, that's been around forever, is just mergers and then elimination of expense, redundancies, and you get to new profitability levels. So that's, you know, that's one way to to think about this. But but you don't want to be over aggressive in your thinking. You want to just say, if I just took this, how long would it be until it started paying me real profits that you know, are, are new money to me after I've, you know, spent the money to pay to, to buy it. So that's, that's, you know, how to think about it. And all of us have different levels of risk. Now, you know, if you've got a lot of cash on hand, you could say to yourself, well, I'm willing to buy something and I don't care if it doesn't pay me anything for four or five years. Well, fair enough, but that's a long time to wait. And so, you know, that's, that's the calculation on, on it. And, you know, you're not trying to rip anybody off. You're not trying to do, you're not trying to be uncool to the, to the buyer, to the seller in this process. You're just trying to think through what makes sense for you and what sounds appealing to them. And obviously they want to be paid a big amount for their assets and uh, you want to pay as little as possible. And the truth has to fall in the middle in a, an acceptable way for both of you, you know? 
Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the issue of, of the cash flow or how or the sort of, yeah, I suppose cash flow can't avoid that word really, my, my, one of my favorite mm-hmm. words. Uh, in other words, you, you're you thinking about how long it takes you to get your money back. And then yeah. after that, it's all gravy, it's all profit. And yeah. then, of course, the elimination of expenses piece, as, as you said, that's more of a sort of <clears throat> so it's strategic acquisition thinking or sort of roll-up thinking, isn't it? So the more mm-hmm. things you bolt mm-hmm. on, the back office functions stay about the same and maybe they expand a bit, but you don't have to buy a whole new bunch of people in. But what's interesting to me is that feels, for starters, a bit like the, the thinking that if you're a private label seller, particularly if you import and you sell on Amazon, that's very much the thinking you have to think. It's just you add another zero to the time frame. So uh-huh. instead of thinking, I'm going to lose money on this product for three months, and then the fourth month, I hopefully pay that money back. And then in the fifth, mm-hmm. sixth month onwards, I'm into good profits. And it feels very similar, except instead of thinking months, you're thinking years. So that feels not that dissimilar. Yeah. Um, in it's terms ROI, of ROI thinking. Yeah, mentality, yeah. yeah. But also the cash flow thing comes in, which then brings me to the question of, without getting into the, the weeds too much, but the basics of the deal structure that you were talking about. Because mm-hmm. obviously, if you have to pay all the money up front, then you've got to wait. Say, if you pay three times annual earnings, you've got to wait three years mm-hmm. to get that money back, right? But presumably, you would have structured deals a little bit differently and what what deal structures have you come across in your own personal acquisitions sure well usually sellers want money (laughs) immediately (laughs) before they give you anything so you know i mean there's different ways you can different ways you can finance it i guess is that sort of the question is how do you finance your deals or what are the deals types yeah yeah, I suppose it means when Mm -hmm. when do you pay money out of your accounts (laughs) the the Uh cash flow from your perspective really yeah, well, so different deal types would look like, you know, the you can just write a check for cash and it's a you know, one-time transaction, wire the money, and then they give you all the intellectual property and assets and, you know, login passwords and details and all the, you know, business assets. You you know, you can do that, but you can and you can use, you know, just earnings you have on hand, money you have on hand. You can use loans. A lot of us who, you know, have money flowing through Stripe or PayPal or anywhere if you have it done in bradstreet's number in the u.s i don't know how the system works in the, in the uk but you know if you're a known business operator you're getting literally pitched uh loan offers all the time so business credit is just sloshing around the world like you know crazy so there's tons of money out there if you want to use a loan product so you take a loan you give the full amount to the seller and they're made whole immediately they give you all the business assets, but you really only made the first loan payment maybe, you know, then or, you know, within a month or whatever. So, you you know, you just finance the deal over time. That's very straightforward. You can also then, if you wanted to, you could also just ask the seller if they would take payments. So, that's another, you know, that is seller financing in real estate terms, but you could just ask them, you know, would you take payments? They might say yes to that. In, in which case you could just do it from, you know, earnings, you know, from your current cash flow, or you could still take a loan. So if they're making, if they're taking payments and you'd take a loan, you know, you're really talking about very minimal, you know, front end money needed on your side. And then I would just say, you know, the, the fourth way you could operate is if there's something big and you want it, <laughs> you know, it's like, there's a big deal. You want it. You could always find an investor, a strategic partner and take the opportunity to somebody, you know, like, Hey, I've got an opportunity to buy a company, but you know, it's a little bit outside my reach and I'm looking for strategic investors. I'll manage it all. And, uh, but here's the deal now, you know, to do that means you've got to sell that person on the merits of the deal. You also have to have a deal with them to clarify how they're going to get rewarded. And that gets complicated. You know, I mean, there's different ways they might want to be rewarded. Uh, they might treat it like a loan on their side, 
where they just want money back at a, an interest rate, they might treat it like they're an, a part owner. So they kind of have like this equity owner's share mindset. Those are that, but those are legal issues. And so you want to, you know, that's sort of deeper into the swimming pool. I would say those are not for the new one-time, first-time, you know, deal doer. So that makes sense. That does make sense. Very briefly wanted to ask, because we should ask about a bit more about the how. I guess we're beginning to approach mm -hmm. that. But one thing I just wanted to say is evaluating risk. Now, obviously, that's not kind of a sexy word, but obviously when yeah. you're putting your own money down for something, I guess you want to know what's the potential for it to go to zero or you yeah. to lose some money. And, and how do you deal with that and, and evaluating that? And how does that affect the price you pay? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I would say the simplest way to evaluate risk is have a set of due diligence or diligence questions that you sort through, that you you have all the questions in your mind answered related to the business operation. That could take, you know, a couple conversations, a couple hours, and it would be methodical about it. You know, don't just go rando into a Zoom meeting with some seller and start just, you know, freeforming the stuff. You, you probably would want to make a list send the list to them ahead of time and say, I want to answer, ask and answer these questions and, and have answers to them. And, and so then they know kind of what you're looking for. And so that's, that's a nice way to approach it. And, you know, you can Google around and, and find out, you know, what, you know, just, you know, there's, everything's available on the internet. What, you know, what questions should I ask when buying a business or, you know, stuff like that. And so you want to sort through that so that you're just comforted in your own mind that you understand what you're acquiring. Now, you know, if this is a very similar business to your own, maybe it's a competitor or something like that, and you really operate in the space already, then you're going to know a lot about the industry you're stepping into because it's your own, you know, it's your own space, it's your own niche. I would start there if you're going to do a first time deal. I would buy something that is so in your wheelhouse that you have many answers, but don't assume you know everything, you know, still go into it with a real strong case for inquiring. Now, the, the big challenge in that scenario, when you're dealing with a potential competitor, or at least in their mind, they're a competitor, is if they're really still amped up about being a competitor in their mind, and they think there's a lot of, you know, they still see a lot of value in what they've created, they will not want to disclose business details to you for fear that you'll somehow, you know, benefit from the disclosure of information. Now, if they're a failing competitor, and you're a winning competitor, then in reality, you don't want to be unkind about it. But you could just say, well, I know, you know, no disrespect, but I know everything about this industry and I, I know how to operate this business. So I do know a lot about it. Now, you don't want to come off as sort of this weird, you know, I'm going to buy you out and I, I'm better than you or anything like that because that'll just tank the deal. But you but you do want to go into it, you know, asking those questions from first, you know, I guess you get first principles point of view or a, a beginner mind where you say, tell me about your business. How does it work? You, you might learn things. Now, they might ask you to sign an NDA or that, you know, they might not re really want to be forthcoming with details. Like maybe they don't want to dis disclose a, vin a specific vendor relationship that is a closely held relationship. And, and you don't know who their vendor is, but you know, they're, you know, they're making a lot of money. You could ask them a ton of things about that vendor without saying, tell me the name of the company or tell me who it is. You know, you can find out all the business information. And so these things are all going into your mind to say to yourself, am I satisfied that I know what I'm doing? And then I'm going to, you know, put my money on the line. And in general, the best suggestion would be go, go slow, start small, do one deal. And, you know, that sort of helps you understand, you know, whether you're good at this. And, and you know, in that way, you kind of get you get your handle around how to assess uh, risk and whether you can do it well, you know, so. 
Yeah, great, great point. So I guess go slow is always a good starting point. There seems to be this tremendous overly artificial sense of urgency knocking around yeah. e-commerce somehow. Yeah. I guess that's just created by good marketing for, you know, Amazon courses and whatever else. But the truth is that there's no rush really. So thank you for that. And starting with your industry totally makes sense as as you indeed have done. You and you and Cinema have done the majority of your acquisitions bang within your wheelhouse, right? You know it extremely well. Mm-hmm. So that's the mm-hmm. all the sort of preludes to what you should be looking at, the risk stuff. So ladies and gentlemen, we've had a very interesting episode today. I think talking to Jason about the real life aspects of buying businesses as a business owner rather than uh, the broker's view or the acquirers in the sort of roll up people like Thrasio and everyone who's copied them since. So quite a unique perspective I think we've had today and very, very interesting. So the as usual, Jason's got the knack of simplifying this complex stuff down to a few simple questions. The first one, does it add value to your current business? Second one, is it available at a reasonable price? And obviously there's a lot of nuance that goes into those things so you may want to add brands that you will keep the brand name but in your sort of wheelhouse your vertical or your your markets category whatever you want to call it or you may want to rebrand things under your house brand is one question and then the question of value how to value a business and the interesting thing we've talked about today that i don't hear much talking about but is an interesting opportunity i think is valuing a business that has assets, but that doesn't really generate earnings. So it could be get great patents or patents, uh, good products, a uh, great team, something sorts on sorted on the social media side, or it could simply be an email list. Any one of these, or of course, altogether, could um, be valued on what Jason called a replacement value. So I think that's very, very interesting opportunity that I don't hear many people talking about, but publicly, but privately, I know several people that are in, in that space. I mentioned one today. Um, The other things, of course, on evaluating the upside potential. So how solid are the numbers? Could you eliminate expenses by making it more profitable? Do you have things like social media team or a CPA or back office team? So marketing uh, team or assets or back office team that you could plug in and, and thus eliminate waste for duplication. That's a classic way to make more money. And then we talked a bit about evaluating the downside as well. And, you know, the main thing is being good at due diligence. So very interesting stuff. The next time we are going to be talking about the how-to piece. So if you've decided you want to go ahead and buy a business, how to go into that a little bit more. Um, as ever, we'd love you to subscribe to the show we can see our download numbers growing over time which is fantastic to see and i certainly know the quality of people's listening from people who have been talking to me about it there's some really good uh, business minds out there so gr- great that we're meeting um your minds and if that's you i'm delighted you're listening but we'd love you to do one of two things for us or even two one is just subscribe to the show spotify apple Podcasts, google whatever it is that's your favorite thing and the other one is if you can leave us your highest and best review or even ratings so just one two three four or five stars on apple podcasts we'd be obviously enormously grateful we've just finished our subscription contest and that was run by rebecca murray who's won a 250 visa gift card so at the moment we're not running a contest if you're listening to this after the end of um, july 2021 but the rewards for listening are of course to be given this information that hopefully can make you the best e-commerce leader you can be that was the e-commerce leader podcast with michael Vizi in london england and jason miles in seattle washington if you liked this content don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app 
for free resources including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products and sales channels, just go to www.theecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening.